Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, let's get started. We're in Revelation chapter 8. And let's pray before we get started and we'll look into this chapter. Lord, we are grateful to be here, thankful for the air conditioning, grateful for so many of the blessings we do enjoy, Lord. We are able to get fresh, clean water. Uh, We are able to get out of the heat, and we know that there are some who cannot. And Lord, our hearts go out to them, not only uh, in other countries, but even parts of the states here. And Lord, we pray for mercy on those who are in the heat, that they be able to get hydrated and take shelter from it. And we thank you again for the blessings we have and pray that we might be a blessing to others, Lord, in the same way. Help us as we go through this chapter to open our minds, our imaginations to the things that you would speak to us, that you spoke to your church years ago and have been speaking to your church throughout the years. Uh, Help us to have a little bit more, maybe, uh, clarity, but may we have a lot more inspiration uh, as you minister to us through these things we read. And we do entrust our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I find that as I'm going through the book and the different, you know, people I'm reading and listening to on the book of Revelation, because it is so different some and some of the things I had been involved with before, it's, I find that it's not as spectacular, but it's more meaningful, if that makes sense. It's something that, it's like certain things start to really resonate with me, and I, I really am moved by them, but I don't find myself, you know, as, oh, this is so exciting because it's going to be this, and it's not this kind of... Uh, I don't know what you would call it, this kind of very dramatic presentation of things. And so I hope as we go through these things, I don't let you guys down with the lack of drama. Um, I've got enough drama in my life. Uh, But hopefully you'll find some of these things really uh, impactful in other ways, even though it might not be as dramatic. Let's start in Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. 
Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. First, there is this, I don't know what you would call it, this pause that we had last week with chapter 7, talking about this number of people that couldn't be numbered, the 144,000, the 12,000 from each tribe, and, and all that that was, how God was bringing this new humanity to himself uh, And after we see that take place with this beautiful um, words that God is going to lead these people who have been martyred, who have been uh, given their life for the gospel, he's going to lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This beautiful picture. And then... When he opens the seventh seal, there's silence. And it's, again, very thematic. It's, it, it's something that is meant to capture your attention. Why is there silence? Why was there this pause from the sixth seal to the seventh seal? And what's happening here? As I was talking about the movie we saw last night, Won't You Be My Neighbor, there's one part in the movie where... Mr. Rogers, while all the other kids' TV shows are fast-paced and all throwing things out, you know, from the animated series to, like, uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse that's just, like, crazy. And then they have this scene with Mr. Rogers and a timer, and he's showing you how long one minute is by putting the timer on for one minute, and then the camera watches the timer for one minute. Right, And that's one minute of TV of just watching a timer where can you imagine all those homes all over just sitting there with a child watching a timer and for one minute there was silence. <laughs> and here we see that there's this silence for about 30 minutes. Why? What's the significance of a half hour silence? Well, could it be so that the prayers of God's people could be heard? Could it be that there was a quieting so that there could be the ability to actually hear? Or is it in response to what God just had done by leading people to the river of living water, wiping away every tear from their eyes? Have you ever maybe been in a a place where music is played? I know it's happened to me when I've been to some of the conferences that I went to of worship where you would be in a room with a thousand different worship leaders and someone would be leading in the moment of worship and there would be thousands of voices singing a song and then the song would be over and there would be silence because it was such a moving moment. You didn't want to break that moment. You didn't want to interrupt it with noise. 
you, you wanted to hold on to it because it was sacred, it was holy, it was special, and it was almost like weight lingering in the air. And I wonder if this opening of the seals, this revelation that God has not forgotten his people, that he is going to care for them, and the final opening of this seal is that pause because something of weight is taking place. There is the glory, the kabod of God that is hanging heavy in this place. We don't know exactly why it's there. These are ideas that we kind of think about, but it's definitely there to help our imagination to see the importance of all that is happening, of what God has done and what God is going to be doing. And it's there to spark that interest. It's amazing how silence can be so powerful, can be so uncomfortable. Right? As we went through the surprise of the world and we talked about taking 20 minutes, how hard that is to have 20 minutes of silence. Right? We were talking to some people and they were saying they cannot go through that without silence. They cannot drive somewhere without the radio being on, without hearing music, without hearing something, that they cannot function without noise. How interesting that silence could have such a powerful effect on someone that they have to interrupt it, right? You have to interrupt the silence. And God is trying to do that. He is trying to help us to see something powerful is happening, that God is heavily influencing the situation, that God does hear the prayer. Not only does he hear, but he hears through the noise of the world, that all those clamorings and the busyness and the millions of useless noises and conversations that are just without depth or concern or consideration of God or others, that he is still able to have silence and distinguish what things are important. And not only does he hear us through the noise, but he responds. And that's what we're getting to here. The prayers which have ascended that were untalked about the culmination in chapter 6. Remember, there was that uh, development. All the prayers that took place came before God in chapter 6 that weren't marked of. Now we start to see them come through. Eugene Peterson writes, the prayers which had ascended unremarked by the journalist of the day, he's talking about John, returned with immense force. He calls it reversed thunder. Prayer re-enters history with incalculable effects. Our earth is shaken daily by it. That's beautiful. The vision here is to empower those who pray that their prayers make it past the ceiling, make it into the presence of God. More than that, people who pray are not so easily seduced by the illusions of the temporary. They're not seduced by the, the promise of power. And they are given instead the ability to see that power is given to the one who gave away 
all his power. Remember, that was Christ. All power has been given to me in heaven and earth. And then he told his disciples, you go. Why? Because the power I have now belongs to you. There was no claiming of it. There was no ruling with it the way we do. There was a giving away of it. And so chapter 6, again, we saw the martyr to ask how long before we get the justice? How long will we go unheard? And now we're starting to get that answer. We start to see these things, and it's so powerful, the image, right? We, we've got the smoke that is there. We've got the incense that is there. We've got this going up before God, and it's almost like it, it's been stirring and, and it's been brewing, right? And he's seeing all this, and I don't know if he's seeing it while the silence is going on, but that's kind of the image I have is there's silence and there's all these prayers, that are going up. And, and what an amazing contrast, the idea of prayer and the idea of silence. It, it's almost like this building of pressure, right? That it is underneath all of this and it's culminating and it's developing and it's growing. And finally, as it's coming before God, the angel takes the censer, fills it with fire from the altar, which has to do with the, the presence, the holiness, the spirit of God, and hurls it at the earth, right? What a picture. All these prayers, they're going to have an effect. They're going to strike the earth. It's not going to stay quiet forever, it's not going to go without answer forever. And the answer is powerful, and it's forceful, and it's powerful. It's almost violent. Not an actual sense of violent, but with the energy of the prayer. As it hurls and it strikes the earth, and there's peals of thunder, rubbling, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All the things that nature could produce that are powerful, that would be something even to this day, right? I mean, what can cause more destruction than sometimes Mother Nature, right? With all the things that man can do, an earthquake causes a tsunami that wipes out so much, right? This vast power is seen now in prayer, striking the earth. And again, it's to empower those who pray. Your prayer is powerful. Not to lose sight of that. And this happens right as the seal is opening up there's the silence, the building of prayer, the hurling it down, this evidence of power that strikes, this image of power that strikes. And then in verse 6 it says, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Again, here's all these numbers, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Seven angels who had seven trumpets are getting ready to sound them. And this would have strong and clear connections to his readers at the time, to those who grew up knowing the Hebrew scriptures, 
right? The battle of Jericho would be one that comes to mind. Remember, they circled the wall seven times. And in the very last day, they blew the trumpet seven times. And so between the people of God and the land of promise was this fortified city, Jericho, with walls 14 feet thick. That was just something that would cause people to, to turn away and say it can never be conquered. And here God, through the blast of the trumpet, brings about victory. Trumpets were used for that, for war, for the calling into battle. They were used for different purposes in ancient Judaism too. Um, sometimes they were used in worship, especially the announcing of certain festivals. More generally, the trumpets were blown for warning, sounding an alarm. Someone's coming to attack in Joel chapter 2, Amos chapter 2, and chapter 3. And it seems to be the point here, that the trumpets are heralding these great plagues that are going to come. The worldwide version of the plagues that took place in Egypt at a time when God is making ready to rescue his people from slavery, bring them into promise. We have that same imagery taking place. God is taking us from this place of bondage and moving us to a place of promise. But in between, we find this is battle that needs to take place. And the trumpets are heralding that God is about to do something and we are to watch to see what's going to happen. It is to alert us to what's going to happen. I think that is the main point. The seven trumpets and what they will bring at the least part of God's answer to the prayers of the evil that has been taking place and that is going to be conquered as God's new kingdom begins to emerge. These trumpets are showing that kind of proclamation that what God's going to be doing. And I think that is really what he's trying to help us envision here. Just as they would hear a trumpet and they'd say, what's going on? What's about to happen? That's what we are supposed to do. The sequence of divine judgments, the necessary things that have to be dealt with because of how the world is, it's not just this put in motion kind of thing. It's not mechanical, right? It's a plan which God's going to push forward, but it's always with regard to humanity, right? It's never in disregard. It's always regarding humanity. God, as we have seen, is committed to working in the world through humanity. Prayer, even the anguished prayer of those who don't understand what is going on, is a vital element to this mysterious cooperation. And we don't know how. I often wonder, what use is it to pray? Anyone else besides me wonder, like, what use is it to pray? But I can't help but pray. And sometimes I feel like chapter 6, how long, God, do I have to cry out to you? And how long do we have to see these kinds of things take place? And how long? And, and God, do you even hear me? And all these things, and to have a picture of those prayers being just that bowl that is filling up with smoke and that God adds that fire to it and hurls it down. 
it's just powerful. Romans chapter 8, Paul says in verse 26 and 27, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. See, I see the Spirit of God being the fire that is added to the cry of my heart that is then eventually hurled back down that causes some kind of reaction even though I may not be aware of it and I may not see it, more is happening that meets the eye. We all know and have heard of prayers that have been answered, right? We all get motivated by those stories, but there are so many times there are prayers that don't get answered, at least that doesn't seem that way. But they're not without purpose. They're not without power. They're not without reason. Right? There's something mysterious taking place in prayer, and I believe this is an illustration of that. And, and as all this is starting to take place, the trumpets are about to sound, it is God committed to his working through humanity, for humanity, to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 7 says, The first angel sounded his trumpet. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpets, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpets, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. We saw in chapter 4 that God was being praised for his goodness, that all creation was in response worshiping God. And now we're seeing a third of everything just about being destroyed. Like, well, are, are you good? No. Do you care about the earth or are you going to wipe it out? And to answer this, I think we've got to look at a few things. And I'm going to kind of talk about three of them. First, we have to recognize there's always consequences to actions. Right? There is always a response to evil that is done. 
Because remember, that is what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with the evil being done to God's people and to God's purpose. So there has to be a consequence. Again, in Romans chapter 8, right where we talked about our prayers being groanings, in verse 19, it says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Which is an interesting idea. Why is creation waiting for the children of God to be revealed? Because waiting for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're waiting for justice to be done instead of the injustice, right? Waiting for humanity to stop acting inhumane. And so there is this creation waiting for this to take place. Verse 20, it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And so there is a response by creation to the actions of humanity. And that's not a surprise for us, right? We've seen it with pollution. Um, we, we see it with a lot of the things that take place in the world. Um, it, it's amazing how much um, befalls people because of the actions of people, right? I mean, the injustices that are done, and how do these things show up? Well, they show up in pollution. They, they show up in a disregard for things, and pretty soon the environment starts rebelling back. You know, the, the land loses its nutrients because humanity has taken all the nutrients out of it without regard to, you know, the soil and the earth. And, you know, there is a, a real push among a lot of people of faith to an environmentalist mentality. And they believe it's a biblical one. They believe that God has always cared about the earth and that it is our job, as it was in the garden, to to care for it. And if we abuse that, it's going to have consequences. And so one of the reasons we see the devastation that's taking place in these trumpet blasts is really... A consequence to all that we've done. It is what happens when you do something, there is the reaction to what we've done. It's much like the person who, the young lady who gets pregnant and, you know, wasn't ready to get pregnant and wonders, well, how could this happen? And it's like, you know, right? But that question is coming from one of now, oh no, I'm dealing with the circumstances that I created. And so I think there is a larger picture of that with humanity and the things that we've done throughout centuries. And this might be kind of an awakening to those things. 
Second thing that we need to understand as we read this is we shouldn't mistake symbol or metaphor with reality. Okay, just as John heard the lion of the tribe of Judah turn and saw the lamb who had been slain, just as we had heard about the 144,000 and saw a multitude that could not be numbered, we saw the creatures with eyes and recognized that these were symbols, these were metaphors to help us understand that. We need to realize that this is symbolic, that he is trying to bring symbolism here, because how do you lose a third of the light of the sun or the moon, right? I mean, how would that actually take place if the moon doesn't reflect light? It's meant to be an image that you capture and you see these things taking place. And it's important that we recognize that. He's talking about God's drastic action to purify the world, to cut it back as you would a tree that needs pruning. Right, We have to deal with the, the sickness. It's just like someone who has a cancer. If you don't remove the cancer, it will get worse. And so there has to be a removal of the disease, removing the deadly cancer so that the rest of the body can be saved. God is doing something similar to that, and it's showing up in these images. He was talking about the necessary work of radically changing the human system in which millions of people have been enslaved and degraded, but which were kept in place by the human political structures. So many people are being devastated because these powers that be, and the only way for that to change is there to be a change in power, and that change of power isn't going to come easily. It never does. Right? Usually governments don't just raise up their hands and say, okay, you take it. Usually it's bloody. If something better is going to come, it usually gets worse before it gets better. And so for things to change, there has to be this major surgery that God is going to be doing with humanity. And these are symbolic to what those things are. The third answer is that these plagues and the continuing ones that we're going to see occur throughout when the bowls of wrath are poured out in chapter 16, we kind of constantly see this return to the plagues of Egypt, right? There is something going on that's always bringing us back to these similar things um, where God afflicted the Egyptians at the end of the Israelites' 400 years of slavery, right? In Exodus chapter 7 through 12, There are ten plagues which strike both the people and the land, functioning as a warning to the Egyptians of the power of the God of Israel. And finally, in a dramatic means by the Passover, Israel escapes because of the shed blood of a lamb. So there's this contrast to Egypt and what God did and what God is still doing. The plagues which John now envisages (laughs) sees, <laughs> would resonate with that, right? It's in the mind of his hearers. They hear these plagues, they think of plagues, and they think of those plagues that were back in Egypt and assured them the same results. God delivered his people through the strongest nation on the world. God is delivering his people through the strongest nation that is in the world. 
Just like he did with Egypt, he is going to be doing here with Rome, and he is going to do with every nation that is opposed to his will and establishing their own that puts others in some subjectivity. Right? Because God is always for those who are being enslaved, those who are being oppressed, those who are being used. God is always on the side of the downtrodden and those who are weak. And it hasn't changed. As he sees these things, he's helping them to see that the lamb himself is who he is because he is the true Passover lamb. We shouldn't be surprised then that just as Egypt was smitten with plagues as both the warning and a means of liberation, the whole world is going to be smitten with similar plagues in order to warn the people of the earth and to deliver God's people all at the same time. God is at work and these things start to unfold. I hate working on cars. That did come out out of the blue. It's connected here. But when you find something wrong, your car won't start. There's a reason. And you have to kind of trace it. Okay, well, it's turning over, but it's not igniting means one thing. If it's not turning over at all, it means something else. Right? And, and so there's a, a diagnostic to what's going on. Well, this is happening. It must be because of this that it's happening. And so when you're there trying to start your car and it won't start, you have to listen to what's happening so that you can find out what needs to be done to remedy this and change that. The world is in a situation where there are evil things being done that affect us. And sometimes until they affect us, until my car stalls and doesn't start, I really don't care. But once my car doesn't start, now I care. Now I have to investigate. Now I need to find out what's the reason for this. And the same thing is happening here. The plagues of Egypt were telling the people of Egypt, we got to let these people go. God is with them. And the people of Israel said, hey, we need to be ready to go because God is with us. And so we see, again, these similar parallels that are taking place. The ten plagues of Egypt were as follows. First, the waters were turned to blood. Then there were frogs, then gnats, then flies. And each of these are afflicting damage and destruction. Right? Each time, Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. So something is happening that's affecting their lives, taking away their comforts, taking away the things that they need, and it forces them to react. And Pharaoh is the one we're looking at in the story, and how he reacts is he gets stubborn. He refuses to listen, refuses to turn and give up his power and allow the people of Israel to go. Then there's the deadly pestilence that struck the Egyptian livestock, there were people who were afflicted with boils. Then thunder, hailstorms devastated the crops. Then came a plague of locusts. And then a building up to the final terror, there was a plague of darkness that came over the whole land for three days. And then finally the Passover night when the angel of death passed over the land 
and the firstborn of every family and every herd was killed. And, and while the Israelites' firstborn were spared because of the lamb's blood on the doorposts of the house, it was a evidence that God was doing something, and each time was opportunity for them to respond. But the more they refused to respond, the more it seemed to snowball and take this effect on them. And that was the final straw. Pharaoh drove the Israelites out of the land, and then to change his mind and pursue them, leading to the second great act of rescue when the Israelites go across the Red Sea on dry land, right? Again, showing God's power, Egyptian army drowning, again, showing God's power, rescuing his people. All these things are in John's mind, and all these things would be in the minds of his readers as he starts going through these plagues here. And even though there's only seven of them, as he's seeing the grass burned up and, and he's seeing the blood, uh, the sea turned to blood. It's not just the, the Nile now, it's all the oceans of the earth. There, there's these similarities that are taking place where all the people reading this would say, oh, this is like Egypt. All these things that took place then, God is doing something now. And that's what we need to see too. He is not repeating them one by one, but we can see them when eventually we find that the rescued people are singing the song of Moses like the children of Israel do earlier on because they were delivered. We will see that take place and it might not happen in you know consecutive order. I, I think these things are helping us to see that God's judgments are still there. And God's deliverance is still to come. And let's face it, all the people who John was writing to, most of them, I don't know, most of them, many of them died and were persecuted and suffered a lot of persecution. They went through a lot of things and died. And that happened to the church for centuries and has been happening to the church throughout centuries not to us here in the states but god hasn't stopped caring we we see judgments take place and it shows up in, in i think a variety of ways but god is going to bring about that song of the lamb in chapter 15 and and when he does we shouldn't be surprised that all of creation is moving in this direction, that God is a master at taking the strengths of humanity and bringing them to nothing. And through their dissolving, establishing stronger things that move us forward. As evil as the world is, there are some things that are getting better. There is more awareness now of slavery than has ever been in the world. It doesn't make it good, and it doesn't make it acceptable, but now there's more people aware of it. There's more people aware of what causes some of these things, right? It, slavery it is not just because some people have power and some people don't. Some slavery is actually developed through economies, I read a book recently, and they talked about how, you know, a, a woman can make 
more money in one night of prostitution than she can in three months of working in, you know, uh, industry, sewing clothes or something like that. Well, that's an economic problem, right? Why do we have an economy that works this way? And what's feeding that economy? Why do some people have the ability to have that much money to be able to use it in a way that causes this kind of unhealthy balance to occur, right? So it's not just a moral problem. It's a complex problem. But you see, the more we start recognizing these things and start addressing these things and start seeing your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God wants to stop human trafficking. So how can I be a part of stopping that, maybe even on an economic level? Right? How can I help stop the injustice of racism? How can I stop the injustice by some governments that are oppressing their people? How can we help people empower themselves? It was so cool hearing uh, Michael and Denise Sunday as they talked about, you know, trying to develop the STEM program there with the kids so that they could use science, technology, and energy and all these things to better their lives and to actually empower the people to make a different life for themselves, right? That looks like God's kingdom. And so in all these things, we're seeing God move and bringing about this. And this is probably the major key to some of the most difficult passages in this book. The particular plagues which come at the blast of the first four trumpets followed one another in quick succession like the four horsemen. And then it begins with two which echo the Egyptian plagues, which were obviously applying to much more wide Uh, area of the world. This is the serious divine warning, not just for one country, but for all humanity. God will not be stopped. God's always going to deliver his people and those who cry out to him, who are oppressed. And those who want to hold on to power that usurps authority over people will find the plagues, the trumpets, are there as God's answers to them. And that's what's happening. The hail, the fire, devastate a third of the earth and its vegetation, a third of the sea, not just the Nile. Again, it turns to blood. The the poisoned waters of the third plague likewise remind us of Egypt. The fourth plague echoes the ninth Egyptian one, bringing darkness for one-third of the time when before there had been light. Right? All these things are parallels. Imagery... From other sources uh, come in as well. The idea of a huge mountain being thrown into the sea. Jesus used that image, right? If you were to cast this mountain into the sea, Mark 11. And it was familiar from the Jewish writings of the time. The picture of a giant star falling from the sky. It sounds like the story of the fallen angel being cast out from heaven in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah The ancient picture was freshly applied to the king of Babylon, right, where the one who was empowered was going to be cast down. And John, well aware of this, sees the fall of the great star in this passage as an evident signpost towards the great culmination at the end of his book. God is going to throw down another great power. Now, it was obvious Rome at the time of his writing, 
but I believe it's every power that takes that position to use and abuse people. And I think those things are really at the heart of what's being spoken here. At the moment, though, the point is that the fire cast upon the earth following the prayers of God's suffering people begins the long process of the catastrophic events which are meant to function as warnings to the people who inhabit the earth. Verse 13, there is nothing wrong with being an inhabitant of the earth, right? That's normal, but the point John is making again and again is that there are many who have lived on the earth as though there were no heaven, as though there were no justice, as if those things were irrelevant. And the fire with the prayer and the cry of God's people hurled at the earth, striking and causing these, or being the beginning of these events, is God's answer saying, oh, it matters. It always matters. His whole book, John's whole book, is about reestablishing the rule of heaven on earth to help us remember that is the purpose. We are to live our lives as if we were living in the kingdom of God because we are. The kingdom is near. And as with all regime changes, those who profit from the present one will need a lot of warning if they're going to realize the seriousness. If things are going to change, the ones who will not change are the ones who are going to suffer the most. And the ones who recognize the change that is coming and yield to what's going to happen are the ones who will be able to endure and move through that, just even as the Egyptians who listened to the warnings and sided with the children of Israel left with them because they left a mixed multitude. If you listen and you hear and you respond, then you will be able to move forward in God's favor instead of suffer the tragedies that come from the plagues that we'll face. And again, all these strings, I didn't go through like each one what they mean because I'm guessing, you know, everyone's kind of guessing, but I know that there's a connection to Egypt and I know that there's a point to this. And so I believe that that's what these points are. Any thoughts or questions? Hmm. That's very cool. Yeah. And it's wonderful to have those experiences and see that, you know, it does empower us. And I think that picture of the the bowl being cast down and the fire striking is a powerful image. Again, it's almost a violent image, but prayer is such a nonviolent thing, right? But it's powerful, and that's the whole point. You know, that even when we don't see the answer, you know, like with Terry, you know, we all prayed for healing and didn't see it. It doesn't change what God's doing and the power of how he's working. And so it's really important to see those things, but it's so encouraging to hear those other things and to take comfort in those. Any other questions or thoughts? Again, I think it's symbolic. I think he's referring even like it did to 
Egypt where there was darkness for three days. And I think the imagery is there to tell us just like the children of Israel were under the oppression of Egypt, the people of this world that are under the oppression here of Rome are going to find deliverance. After Rome, there's other oppressive governments, you know, whether it be uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia or, you know, Mao in China or Stalin in Russia. You think of all the people who have been so brutal and oppressive and how things changed, right? And I think that can be an applicable look at all these areas that take place, but definitely who is referring to Rome. And so I don't think the imagery is meant to be taken literally, you know. I mean, even at the end where he sees, he he heard an eagle flying and then the eagle starts calling out, whoa, 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 you know, it's like eagles don't talk, right? Yeah, there's that thought that the four different creatures were the different gospels. I'm not sure I go along with that because I don't know how prominent the Gospels were when this was written. The Gospels were actually written a little bit later. Paul's writings were written before the Gospels. And so, you know, our chronology is based on the order of the Bible usually. But it's like Exodus was written before Genesis, most likely. And for us, that well, no, wouldn't you need that? Well, no, they actually, let's think, wrote Genesis so that it would be a clarification of what God did in Exodus. Um, so there's things like that that, you know, we look at it and chrono- chronology is a big part of our thinking, especially being a librarian kind of a guy. Um, you know, and so I think those things can kind of get us a little bit mixed up yeah. in some of that. But I, I think it's meant to be taken symbolically. I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be a meteor or, you know, uh, again, third of the sun bring, being darkened. I don't think that that's what he's referring to. You know, I, I think he's talking about judgment. And the judgments of Egypt are taking place now. It could be, you know, well, smog and the things that affect us uh, and our ability to grow food. Those could be things. But the way I see God working isn't to destroy the earth. It is to restore the earth. He's trying to renew all things. I don't see the earth as a lost cause and it's all going to burn and be gone. That's not what we see God doing. We see a restoration of all things. And so, again, that mindset, well, God's going to destroy everything, I don't think that has to happen, right? I don't think that that's, it's all going to burn is the mentality that is being presented here. Yeah. You and me both, right? I mean, Yeah, we've all heard conversations and and different things. And again, I had this conversation with my wife and daughter last night and a little bit today. We've treated the Bible and prayer like magic sometimes, where if you just, you know, believe this, everything's going to be okay. If you just pray this, everything will be okay. And we, we never say it, or a lot of us don't say it. There are some factions that do, you know, especially in the Pentecostal circles, um, that say, yeah, you just got to believe, you just got to pray, you got to say, speak, and this will happen. And a lot of people still hold on to that. you know. And then when something happens to their kids, their kids make bad choices, get involved with difficult things, you know, the idea of, oh, no, what did I do wrong? We, we read them the Bible as if that was supposed to fix everything, you know. And we thought that just a wave of a Bible verse was going to give them 
you know, that resistance to evil and didn't recognize that, no, there's still the choices that have to be made and teaching them how to discern is an important thing, not just, well, just the Bible says it, so just do it. Because when they're at school or under pressure with their peers, they probably don't have the Bible, you know, with them or enough to deal with that circumstance um, or were not prepared enough that maybe they could have been prepared a little bit better not treating it that way. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, I mean, kind of how I feel, you know, and when we raised our kids, you know, we just thought if we gave them enough Bible, they would not make any wrong decisions. And if we just were, you know, praying enough, they wouldn't make any bad decisions. And that just isn't how it works. Um, doesn't mean God doesn't answer prayer. doesn't mean the Bible isn't helpful or God doesn't use it and isn't powerful to give direction for life. It is. But it's not a magic spell. You know, it's something that if you don't ingest it and go through it, then it doesn't affect you, you know. And just hearing it isn't hocus pocus, now you heard the Bible, you know. And so those ideas like you hear God's word will never return void, it'll accomplish what it sets forth to do, as if just saying it's going to make it happen in someone's life. No, God's purposes won't be, you know, thwarted, they're going to happen. But it doesn't mean it'll always have the effect we want it to, you know. And so I, I think coming from that mindset, it's hard sometimes when we look at scriptures and we, again, want the spectacular. You know, I want this to happen. I want God to do this. And God's going to show up and this is going to happen. And, of course, we get to escape, right? So we're not a part of any of this. But I just don't see that that's what this is talking about. I really do see a strong comparison throughout this book to Egypt even as we talked about at the beginning, so much of what happens in Revelation, I forget the percentage, but most of it is coming from the Old Testament. It's just not mentioned by chapter and verse. It's not quoting Isaiah. It's not quoting Exodus, right? It's just referring to those things, all the imagery that takes place. Exactly. And so these things that are taking place in imagery are meant for the people to think and write, oh, what was happening there? Oh, that's right, the king of Babylon was ruling. Oh, that's right, the Egyptians were ruling. Oh, where do we find ourselves? Rome is ruling. And it's supposed to help them remember God's deliverance and that God is still delivering and that it was through the Lamb, now Jesus, who he's going to deliver. Good? Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this book. And I pray, Lord, that these things would be encouragement to us and help us to remember you, to trust you, and to lean into your kingdom, Father, that we would live our lives so that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, that we would make the changes that we can where we are with the people we encounter to have an effect and to trust, Lord, that all these things every prayer that is lifted up to you, every hurt that we go through because we want to honor you uh, is it's an offering, Father, that is not without weight and with not, not without use. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. 
You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.